Uh, we are in week four of a series called Give Yourself Away. And Give Yourself Away is a series that's, that's designed to help us think about the ways that, that God wants us to pour ourselves out into our community. You think the Holy Spirit came and acts, right? And the Holy Spirit empowers us, gives us gifts, gives us talent to be able to go and pour ourselves out into our community and pour ourselves out to other people. And so, uh, you know, give yourself away. The first message of the series, we talked about giving ourselves away to Jesus. And the way that we do that is that we be a people who leave the table. That when we're at the table, we are in a place of being served. But Jesus says, I'm, I, come, I come to you not as one who serves, but as one who... I'm sorry, not as one who is served, but as one who serves. And so we, we leave the table in our faith and we become people who serve one another. That's what it means to, to uh, give ourselves away to Jesus. Secondarily, we, we talked about giving ourselves away to enemies. Like, how do we do that when we're hurt? How do we give ourselves away to people that, that have hurt us and have wounded us? And one of the greatest ways to do that is to remember that who we are before God, that we remember our reflection. And in remembering our reflection, we see a God who showed us mercy and gives us the power and the grace to show others mercy, right? We have been a forgiven people, and he calls us to be a forgiving people as a result. And lastly, we talk about uh, giving ourselves away to the poor. And we, we talked about kind of the imagery of being in a, a raft, that some of us are in rafts and some of us are in rapids by no fault of our own. And the way that we help people who are in, in those situations is to extend our paddles to them. We help them in their circumstances where they are. We don't necessarily ask them uh, what their beliefs are. We don't, we don't care uh, whether they're Republican or Democrat, none of that stuff. We see someone in need, we extend our paddle to them and we help them in their, their place. And so that's what it looks like to help someone who is poor. That's what it looks like to give ourselves away to the poor. It's to see the blessings that God has given each and every one of us. Like Michael was just talking about a moment ago. When we really stop and we meditate, we think about all the blessings that God has given us. He gives us these tools. He gives us means to be able to bless other people and help them out of their situations, help them out of struggle, help them out of strife. And so he gives us, you know, in a rafting analogy, he gives us a paddle to be able to help someone who's fallen in in life and to pull them back out and bring them to a place of safety. That's why we've been blessed the way that we have, is to use it to bless other people. Some of us are in the raft, some of us are in the rapids. And so today, this morning, we are week four of our six-week series. And as you see it behind me, uh, this week we're going to be talking about giving ourselves away to, uh, to three specific people groups, to aliens, orphans, and widows. And obviously I'm not talking about the kinds of aliens that come from outer space, although that would be a very fitting uh, conversation with all the talk about storming Area 51 that's happening right now. I think a million people have signed up to storm Area 51 to find the aliens that we're, are, we're hiding from everyone, apparently. Um, but this week, as I, as I was kind of planning my message, I was thinking about and I was reminded of my time in, in high school. I, I played football in high school from my sophomore year until my senior year, so three years of high school football. Of course, Tiffany was one of the cheerleaders, which is always good for a few awes. Go ahead. You can Aww. see. There we go. Uh, we got the whole football, leader, che football player cheerleader thing going on. Um, and, you know, my school was, uh, was good at football. And as a result of that, not as a result, but in conjunction with that, I was the, the definition of, of average, which meant like if we were a bad team, I probably would have played a lot, but we were a good team. And that meant I, I played almost never at all, right? My Friday nights were kind of my day off. You know, I got most of my playing time Monday through Wednesday. 
uh, playing the opposing team's plays against our starters. And so uh, football was not my glory years. But as I kind of reflect, all three years that I played, I was blessed to have the same coaches. They kind of rose through the ranks with us. And so not a lot changed in terms of our, our conditioning which meant that it began as rigorous and it ended as rigorous all three years because our coaches believed, hey, we want to be the best conditioned team on the field on any given Friday night. We always want to be in better shape than the team that we're playing. And so you know, every Wednesday, like clockwork, we'd, we'd pad up, we'd go out, we'd do our three hours of football practice or whatever it was. And, you know, about 530, the, the whistle would blow and the, the coaches would yell line up. And so we, we'd run down to the goal line. Uh, the coaches would tell us to get in a three point stance. And then they would tell us, hey, you're going to sprint to the five-yard line or the 10-yard line or the 15-yard line. And our job when the whistle blew was to run down, touch that line, and run back as fast as we possibly could. Sounds simple, right? Go down, touch a line, come back. Simple. Except it was not simple for some people. Because without fail, there'd be somebody who did not listen to what the coaches said about when they were supposed to run. Because we'd be told, you know, hey, run on the first whistle, or run on the second whistle, run on the third whistle. And if you've played any football in your life, you know that, you know, when the quarterback goes up to the, the line of scrimmage, uh, or in the huddle, rather, he's going to tell you, hey, the count is on two or on three. And so they're going to go up there and say, ready, set, hut, hut, that's two, or hut, 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 that's three, or hut, that's one. And so you have to pay attention to what you're told when to run. That's a huge part of, of being successful in football. So the language doesn't matter much what they say, but it's about knowing when to run. And so for the coaches, running on the right whistle, you can imagine, was kind of a big deal. It was a really big deal. You're supposed to run when you're told to run, but it just it never seemed to be that simple. There, there always was somebody who would start running early. And I was, I was telling Tiffany this recently. For, for us, it was this guy named Elijah Gentry. Elijah Gentry, I still remember him, no matter what, every week without fail, that guy could not run when he was told to run. There were a couple other uh, offenders. I don't think in three years I ever jumped off sides. But man, Elijah could not run on the right whistle to save his life. And so every time Elijah would start running, the coaches would, would tack on another run. And they'd tack on another run. They'd tack on another run. And if the coaches had decided we were going to run eight times that day, by the time we were all said and done, we, we were running 16 times. We would do twice that simply because Elijah or somebody could not listen to directions. One, one person would cause all of us to pay the price. And so you can imagine we're 16 years old. We're crude. We're football players. So you can imagine all the four-letter words that were being yelled out uh, at the end of practice every Wednesday as people were frustrated that Elijah or somebody couldn't run at the right time. And so at that time... Uh, all of us who were doing what we were supposed to be doing uh, were, were rather frustrated. We resented the fact that we had to pay the price for the mistake of one or for the mistake of two. Now, why don't you just make them run some more? Uh, and that wasn't really the way the coaches saw that situation because for them, they, they saw us as a team. And a team, by definition, is not about me. It's about we. A team is always about we. A team doesn't win a game because of me, and a team doesn't lose a game because of me. A team wins or it loses based on how we as a team play. If we play well, we win. If we play poorly, we lose. And the results are always earned by the sum of the parts. The results are determined by the we. And so there's that tension that exists there between the individual and between the communal aspects 
of our lives that we're going to look at a little bit more in depth this morning. And so I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. If you're uh, new with us, a lot of times I like to just invite us to change our posture before God. You know, it's comfortable to kind of sit, and I get that, but this is a time of reverence for us. And so if, if standing is different or uncomfortable, then stand. If, if kneeling is different or uncomfortable, then kneel. But I invite you just to find a posture that's uncomfortable and reverent before God this morning. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Lord, you are, uh, you are merciful and you are good and you are worthy of our praise. And so this morning, I just want to praise you. I want to praise you with the words that are spoken and I want to praise you with the way that we listen, Father. I ask that not a single word that comes out of my mouth would be words that were spoken uh, by me alone, Father, but that your Holy Spirit would be present in this room, that you would, you would speak through me and, and penetrate our heart, Father. You tell us that the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would, you would just speak through me and speak right into our hearts with the sharpness of a double-edged sword and help us to be a people that love your word, that embrace your word, that, that are, are like trees planted by streams of water because we are so close to your word and we allow it to nourish us. We never run out of nourishment because we are grounded in who you are. We are grounded in your word. And Father, we thank you for being a merciful God to us because uh, because of your mercy, Lord, we have life. Father, help us to be a people of mercy. Help us to be a people of love. Help us to be a people of grace and to show that in every opportunity that we have, Father, to pour ourselves out into our neighbors, into our friends, into our coworkers, into our communities, and to be those kinds of Christians today. Father, help us to, to listen with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help me to speak with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And help us to live as Jesus lived, to be his hands and feet in, in our community. Thank you for a great week. We pray that you bless today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. All right, you guys can be seated. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open up to James chapter 1. We're going to be in James chapter 1 to start this morning. And uh, as you get there, I, wanted you, I want to encourage you to think about examples in your life or things uh, that you see in the world or in the community or, or culture around you that, that exemplify what I was just talking about a moment ago. Like when you look around you, can you see times or can you see examples where there's resistance or maybe even resentment between individuals and between a specific community of people? As I just illustrated, there was a great deal of frustration. There was a great deal of resentment in the actions of a few on our football team, or that of the actions of a few could have such an effect on the rest of us so that the, the community began to resent the individuals. And I'm curious, as you think about your own life, as you think about experiences that you've had, where else do you see that reality lived out in our world today, where the, the actions of a few can affect the multitudes or can affect the community. I mean, certainly the, the military, I think, carries with it a lot of the same experiences. Like if I, as a Marine, do something that's wrong or do something I'm not supposed to, then my team or my battalion or my brigade or whatever language is appropriate there uh, is going to pay the consequences for that too. That that error is not an individual error and nor is the outcome. It impacts the entire community. 
We see the same in our workplaces, especially as it pertains to small businesses, right? Like if I'm an employee and I go to work and I'm not doing my job, what kind of impact can that have on my community? Like I, not to put it crudely, but my job in that moment is to be the kind of employee that helps my company make money. And if I'm not helping my company make money, then I'm hurting my boss and I'm hurting fellow employees. I'm hurting the company, right? It impacts the community. And so we see the same in our workplaces. Um, but we see the same in our lives. We see it all over the place. The actions of individuals can have dire effects on the community at large. And so we, we understand that, I think, and we get that, and yet we often don't want to live out the inverse of that very much. Because what happens when the actions of a community begin to have a significant and adverse impact on us as an individual? Like, how do we handle that? How do we deal with that? How do we feel about those times? Because when that happens, I think, is when we begin to hurt. And so our we changes from a we to a me, or from a we to an us. It's an us versus them. Uh, 2008, I think, is a great example. Like, what happens when the banking community mismanages their business, and because of that mismanagement, I lose all of my investments? Or what happens when the government that's supposed to represent me does something that I don't like or doesn't lead me well or taxes me in a way that I don't think is very fair? How do I feel about those times? How would you describe that, church? When you are impacted by the decisions or the actions of a community, how does that feel? Any words? Unfair? Angry? Helpless? Right? There's all sorts of words that sort of describe that. And when we get hurt that way or we experience those feelings, what do we begin to do? What we begin to do is we begin to change our language. We change our perspective because suddenly it's not about we anymore at all. Suddenly it's that us versus them language. And you know, political examples are, are easy, right? They, the Republicans, have wronged we, the people, because they want to make themselves richer. Or they, the Democrats, have wronged we, the people, because they want to tax us to death. Or, and they can represent all kinds of people groups, right? They, the blacks, or they, the whites, or they, the, the young, or they, the old, or they, the liberals, or they, the conservatives, or they, the illegals. That's a, to, to borrow something from, from modern conversations, right? They are not like me. They are not like us. They are bad, and I am good. And that's kind of ultimately how we approach those conversations and what it comes back to in the end, that ultimately our default position is that if this is detrimental to me or if this negatively affects me, it must be bad. It must be resisted. We must stay away from this thing that hurts me. And I think we see some version of this conversation in our country right now as we, we talk about political dialogue with race relations. Some of you may be aware, some of you may not be, but there's at least some group of people in the U.S. who feel like uh, in order to, to bring justice and equity to African Americans in, in the U.S. who have ancestors who were slaves, that we should be paying reparations. There should be some effort made to bring that equity and bring justice and to try to right some of the wrongs of previous generations. That's one, one group. That's one uh, perspective on that. And then there's this other group in the U.S. who believe, hey, like I was never a slave owner and you were never a slave. So why does it make sense for me to, to be held accountable to the sins or the mistakes of other people? That doesn't make any sense to some people. And there's this disconnect for, for this conversation. And I think that stems from how we tend to view sin. Like if sin is only individual, then maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe I shouldn't have consequences for a mistake that I never made. But the other side of the conversation contends that sin can be more than individual, that sin can be communal as well. 
And I think we, see, we seem to see this in the Bible a lot of times where God is confronting the, the faithlessness. He's confronting the idolatry of not just individuals, but an entire nation or people of Israel. He's talking to Israel and he's saying, hey, you guys have been faithless. You guys have not been faithful to me. Now, I don't have any idea whether paying reparations is the right way to deal with with the, our, our history with slavery in the U.S. And that's kind of way above my pay grade and not something I'm trying to tackle this morning. But I bring it up only to illustrate that tension that exists between individual culpability and communal culpability, right? Is this a me problem or is this a they problem? Is this a we problem? Those are questions that we need to begin to ask. And so today we're turning our attention to what the Bible has to say or what God has to say to us as Christians about three specific people groups, about aliens, about orphans, and about widows. And James' comments on these groups of people are probably the most notable. They're probably the most memorable from Scripture. So I want to start there. But James hardly has the most to say about these these people groups. His comments come as a precursor to last week's text where we talked about what God has to say to us and our our love and our care and our service to the poor. Last week was the beginning of chapter 2. This is the end of chapter 1. So I invite you to read along. We're in verse 27. The text says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless or pure and undefiled is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's what James says pure and faultless religion looks like. And so as we read the book of James, kind of process all that James is there, we come face to face with the fact that religion for James is more than just a belief system, that for James, it is also a behavior system. And so as chapter two of James comes to a close, you may remember these words. He he finishes chapter two by saying that faith without action or faith without deeds or faith without work is what kind of faith, church? It's a dead faith, right? And so what James is talking about religion He's asking readers to put their faith in Jesus into action. And according to him, that the purest and best way to do that is to look after two people groups, is to look after orphans, and is to look after widows. And what he's saying is important, but it's not anything new to believers. This isn't the first time that believers have heard that they need to care about and pay attention to these two people groups. The oldest book in the Bible is often believed to be Job. That's where where scholars believe is the very first book written. And you may remember the story of Job, right? He's... Suddenly he's going through all this suffering and he has these friends who are like talking to him for 30 chapters like Job. The only reason that you're suffering right now is because you must have done something wrong. If you hadn't done something wrong, you wouldn't be suffering. And Job's like, no, I didn't do anything wrong, guys. Oh, yes, you did. If you, if you hadn't done something wrong, you wouldn't be suffering. He's like, I didn't do anything wrong. And you get to Job 31 and he's continuing to defend himself. He says in verse 16, he's like, if I have denied the desires of the poor guys or or I've I've let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth, I, I reared them as a father would. And from my birth, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments and their hearts did not bless me, or, or warming them with the fleece from my sheep, or forewarming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court. He says, like, if I've done any of those things, if I have neglected the aliens, the orphans, or the widows, 
He says, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. But he says, I dreaded destruction from God. And for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. And I love how Job kind of concludes what he's saying here because he's recognizing how seriously God takes this calling to look after orphans and widows and aliens in our world among us. He says, I dreaded destruction from God. Like if I didn't do those things, I would have been destroyed. And his belief that God would destroy anyone who mistreated the orphan and the widow is not new. In fact, it comes from the book of Exodus. God said as much to the Israelites in Exodus. You know, we, we know in Exodus 20, God's speaking to Moses and he gives these 10 commands. He says, like, these are the ways that I want people to live, right? Here, these are the 10 commands that you need to know, the 10 laws. But we neglect sometimes that there's like chapters after that where God is still talking to Moses and saying, hey, I want you to go tell them, like, here's some other stuff that you guys need to be paying attention to for three chapters. He's outlining all the ways that he wants his people to live. And you get to Exodus 22, verse 21. And God's telling Moses, hey, I want you to go tell the Israelites this. Don't mistreat or oppress a foreigner because you were foreigners in Egypt. Don't oppress the aliens because you were an alien. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Like, can you just say, wow, church? Like, that's a pretty intense thing to say, right? Let's try that. We're a little sleepy this morning. Let's say, wow. wow. All right. Wow. All right. There we go. You know, God's commitment to and compassion for the alien and the orphan and the widow is undeniable. Like, it is, it is all throughout God's text. And here's what I want you to take a moment to stop and consider is why. Why does God single out these three people groups so much? Why, why these three people groups? And I, Bible scholar Donald Burke, he, he answers that question this way. He says, you know, the basic claim that Moses makes is that it is fundamental to the character of Israel's God to protect and love the widow, the orphan, and the alien. In other words, God's character is evident clearly in his divine concern for the most vulnerable and easily oppressed people. And so for this reason, Israel was to make a special provision for the widow, orphan, and alien. He says every third year, the tithe was to be set aside to provide for them. That's Deuteronomy 14. He says the Sabbath rest was to be granted even to slaves and aliens among others. That's Deuteronomy 5. He says part of the harvest was to be left in the fields to provide food for the marginalized. That's Deuteronomy 24. And he says, and justice was to be executed for the widow, for the orphan, and for the alien. And just in case you haven't gotten the message yet, he says, all who deny justice to the widow, the orphan, and the alien are cursed. All of that coming out of Deuteronomy 24. So my question is, why does God single these groups out over and over and over again? Why is the entire book of Deuteronomy peppered with all these references to aliens, orphans, and widows? And I'm going to answer it this way. It's because God did not create humanity to be individuals. He created humanity to be part of community. He created us to be in relationship with other people. I want you to think about this. You go back to the creation. God creates Adam. And then he looks at Adam and he says, it is not good for man to be a what? It's not good for man, for man to be alone. And so as I, I sat down this week and I thought about God's heart for the aliens 
and his heart for the orphans and his heart for the widows. And I tried to understand what he was really saying here. Why, why these three groups? What do they have in common? Why are they singled out in such a way that they are? What I realized is that in all three cases, aliens, orphans, and widows are people without a people. They are people who have been severed from their community. They are people who have been cut off from their support system. They are people who are alone. And God never intended for us to be alone. It was not good to be alone. You want to look at, at something, look at the research done on prisoners who are put in solitary confinement. Right? It's, it's, it is this psychologically tragic circumstance to be cut off from other people. It is not good for us to be alone. We are not meant to be alone. God designed us to be a we. Say we, church. He designed us to be a we. And yet the alien, the orphan, and the widow, at the end of the day, are relegated to a world of me. That in the worst cases, me is all they have. You think about this, the way that God designed creation, right? Before a child ever comes into the world, if we do things God's way, there's already this network of community that is supposed to surround and exist them, uh, exist for them in the world that they're born into. A man is placed into relationship with a woman, and they form this unbreakable bond called what? Marriage, marriage right? And from marriage, a husband and wife unite, and from that unity comes a child, and that child forms what? Family. And then families unite with other families, and they form cities, and they form communities, and they form nations of people. But when you think about these three words, the alien is cut off from their nation, and the orphan is cut off from their family. And the, the, the widow is cut off from their what? Their marriage, right? They become a people without a people. And people without those relationships that God so beautifully designed is an issue. He designed us to have those relationships and God calls us to do something about that. As Christians, he calls us to be a people to those people. And what I think is so beautiful about this is that God himself has been modeling this for all of us for thousands of years. He's been showing us how to be in community, right? We just talked about Exodus 22 a moment ago. You fast forward three chapters later, you're in Exodus 25, and God gives these specific instructions to Moses. And he tells Moses that he wants him to have the people make a sanctuary for him. Why? Why does he want that? It's so that he, the God of the universe, think about this, the great I am, the God of the universe, the God of all that is, the maker of, of you, the stars, the heaven, the earth, everything can come and he can dwell among his people. And so God begins to tear down the barrier between him and them and he begins to create a we, doesn't he? But then what happens next? Even after all that, after the people mess the whole situation up and they reject God is part of their community. What does God do? He does it again. You look at John chapter 1, verse 1. You know these words well, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you go 14 verses later, and it says, And the Word became what? Flesh. And He came and did what among us? He dwelt. He tabernacled among us. That is what God did in the person of Jesus. It's what 
what God has been doing all along. God came in the form of Jesus. He came in the form of the Son, and he modeled community. That in the person of Jesus, God tears down the barrier again between him and them, and he tries to create a we. He begins to create a we. But what happens with Jesus? Ultimately, he's rejected from the community, right? They kill him. They get rid of him. And so what does God do now? He does it again. You guys remember Acts chapter 2, right? God arrives this time as the Holy Spirit. And this time, God not only chooses to live among us, what does he do different this time with the Holy Spirit, church? Where does he live? He lives within us, right? He begins to fill believers with his Holy Spirit. And so every single time, God reaches out and he destroys the barrier between him and them. And he moves to create a we. He was rejected so that he, he came back even closer. He's rejected again. He comes back even closer still. And this is why I think blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is such a big deal in Scripture. Not to get off on a tangent, but when you reject the Father, it's like there's still the Son. And when you reject the Son, there's still the Holy Spirit. But what do you do after you reject the Holy Spirit? He's trying to live inside of us. What do you do when you reject that? He literally tried so hard to become a we that he tried to live in me. And if I don't let him do that, I'm out of options. I'm out of opportunities. And so the beauty of God's story with humanity is that it's a story that is always, always, always about community. And so when my football coaches understood that I failed to understand at the age of 16 or whatever it was, was that life was not a series of individuals each marching to the beat of their own drum. Life is a collective of people who are designed beautifully for relationship. And so we made a mistake in football and we needed to run that extra rep because of it. There is no me on that team. And so friends, like we're gonna encounter people in our lives, no shortage of people in our lives who are alone in this life. For one reason or another, they are alone, whether it's because they lost a spouse or they lost a parent, or they lost community and coming to live here in the United States. Like this is a, a modern day issue that we have to, to deal with as Christians. You think about our city, like our city yesterday, being in City Impact, being in the Tenderloin, our city is rich with people from a foreign land. We have people all over the city who are aliens in our land. You look at our, in our congregation, this congregation is rich with widows. And I hope someday this is a congregation that is rich with orphans as well. We have these, these amazing opportunities to love and bless people. And so our job as followers of Christ is to put our faith into action, as James says, and to join them where they are and to be the we. It's to be the we. And so when we choose to be the we, we are making a conscious decision to change our perspective, to change our vantage point, and to stop seeing ourselves according to this us versus them worldview, because that's not how we're supposed to exist. Be the we means that like God, I'm going to go out of my way to establish a relationship where there is none, that I will see you in your pain, I will see you in your loneliness, and I will choose to be part of your community, and I will invite you to be part of my community or our community. And so we need to be a people who are no longer cloistered and isolated in silos of people who think and act and believe in all the same ways that I think and, and act and believe. And instead, we need to lift our eyes, we need to look up, and we need to look around and see the people in our world who walk a lonely road. The church is called to be that kind of community. That's who we're called to be, church. We're called to recognize the Muhammads who call us on Yelp or write us on Yelp and welcome you into our family. That's who we're called to be because you are not a you and I am not me. God has created us to be a we. We are a we. Say that with me, church. We are a we. 
And what that means is that if an alien is hungry, we are hungry. And if an orphan is scared, we are scared. And if a widow is weeping, we are weeping. And so the trials and the tribulations that even one of us face in community are the trials and tribulations that all of us face because we are community. That's who we are. Who are the aliens among us? Think about that. Who are the orphans among us? Who are the widows among us? I think be the we means that we ask that question, that we put our faith into action by surrounding those people with support and meeting their needs and becoming their community. Because someone you know, someone in your life right now needs your phone call. And someone you know needs you to take them out to coffee and ask them how they're doing. And someone you know needs to be invited to church. And someone you know needs to be prayed over. And someone you know has nowhere to go for Thanksgiving or Christmas this year and would love to be brought into your family and into your home and to spend that time with you. So my question is, how can you, how can we help them from their place of loneliness and bring them into a place of community? How can we find the people without a people and become their people? In some sense, tabernacle among them, the way that God did through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? How can we flip the narrative from an us versus them narrative and embrace that God made us a we? And so the call to give yourself away to aliens, orphans, and widows among us is a call to be the we in their lives. That somebody out there needs us. Needs us. We. And I pray that we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hands to touch and words to speak to be their community. To allow them and encourage them and invite them to belong to us. That's why I'm glad Muhammad's here. That's why I'm glad my brothers and sisters from all over the country are here. We get to be a we. We get to be a family. We get to be part of community. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a thing that, that's kind of unique, I think, only to the church in some sense. We get to be community. And, and I invite us and encourage us to be thinking about the people in your life that live next door to you, that work with you, that, that you meet at the grocery store. How can you be a part of their community? Or how can you bring them into being a part of your community? Be the we. See them in their loneliness, see them in their hurt, and bring them into relationship with you. Tabernacle with them. Bless them. Encourage them. Live with them. And so today, church, as we, we bring things to a close, I'm going to close in a word of prayer, but I want to invite anyone here. If there's anyone in this room who has not been invited or who has not submitted to the body of Christ and, and become part of the church, I want to invite you to do that. You have an opportunity to, to come and share with us where you are. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to baptize you if you've never been baptized. But we want to have an opportunity to do that. We want to welcome you into community. We want to do life with you. We want you to be part of we, part of us. This is no longer a you and us. This is no longer an us versus them. This is a chance for us to be the we. Say be the we, church. All right, let's stand and pray. Father, yesterday was a beautiful day because it was an opportunity for the church at large here in San Francisco to just come out and be community and just bless people so much. I saw so many people of other faiths, so many Muslims a lot, who, who had a chance to hear your gospel spoke and preached. And I just rejoice over that, Father. 
As I think about the people among us, there, there are people who are alone. There are people who don't even know they're alone, who are alone. And you've called us to be not individuals, but to be part of community. And Father, it's so easy in our world to, that we live in to, to get so into our own lives and to think only about our homes and, and our assets and everything that you give us that we, we kind of forget that it's, it's not meant just for us that you've, you've given it to us so that we can be a blessing to other people and to be community to them. And so, Father, I, I'm mindful of those who have been severed from their, their marriages and from their families and from their nations and people. Uh, help, help us as the church to come alongside them and surround them with, with love and to be Christ to them, to be hands and feet, to meet their needs, their tangible physical needs on this earth, and to love them unconditionally, Father. Help us to love the aliens, orphans, and widows among us, both in this congregation, uh, but also outside these walls. And in so doing, help us to be a people that brings Jesus to this world and to this community. Help us to be the we in their lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's sing.